Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment... Well, what is the path forward in the fight to reduce coronavirus infections? It's a familiar solution, as CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky testified to Congress earlier in the week. To date, our data indicates that vaccines are available to neutralize the circulating variants in the United States and provide protection against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. The message from CDC remains clear. The best way to prevent the spread of COVID-19 variants is to prevent the spread of disease, and vaccination is the most powerful tool we have. And there's something else. It also means healthcare workers are once again bracing for the mental health impact of the Delta variant. Dr. Deval Desai joins me to talk about healthcare workers. He says they have stories to tell and we must listen. Also, imagine replacing your green grass and lawnmowers and all those other green things on your lawn with fresh fruits and veggies. Well, a Decatur-based organization is hoping to help hoping to fight food insecurity by encouraging more urban gardens. These are community conversations with you, the listener and mine, all coming up next. But first this, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp has announced the formation of a group that will study ways the state can capitalize on the electrical vehicle market in coming years. It's called the Electric Mobility and Innovation Alliance, and it will be part of the state's Department of Economic Development. It will include members of the public and private sector. Now, one study predicts that car companies will invest $250 billion to develop electric vehicles in the next two years. And two electric vehicle battery plants are in Commerce, Georgia. Well, they're already under construction and expected to employ more than 2,000 workers. In other news, federal officials say they're tightening security on critical infrastructure like, well, the Alpharetta-based Colonial Pipeline. Of course, this move follows a May ransomware attack that shut down the vital fuel pipeline. According to the Department of Homeland Security, federally designated pipelines that carry hazardous liquids or natural gas must undergo a full cybersecurity review. And DHS says it's urgent to adapt to, quote, evolving threats from cyber intrusions. And finally, Judge Verda Colvin has been appointed to the Georgia Supreme Court by Governor Brian Kemp. Judge Colvin is the first black woman appointed to the state Supreme Court by a Republican governor. Some years ago, Judge Colvin was a guest on this program to talk about a courtroom speech she gave to youth that went viral. It was part of a Consider the Consequences program. They found themselves in much trouble um, and their parents finally reached out for help from law enforcement for this program. And I just come from the heart. And this particular occasion, what I saw from these young people was more egregious than what 
it felt like I had seen in previous months. And they just keep getting younger. I mean, I had several nine-year-olds and 10-year-olds there, and I just needed to get their attention and to make them realize that there are choices that you're making every day that's dictating the future that you don't even think about. Absolutely. That's Judge Vertikovin back in 2016 on Closer Look, talking about a courtroom speech that went viral. Judge Colvin newly appointed to the Georgia Supreme Court. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Quote, we are at a point of great promise and peril in the fight against COVID-19. Close quote. That was the opening message earlier this week from Democratic Senator Patty Murray of Washington State as the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee held a hearing on the federal government's COVID-19 response. Now testifying, there were familiar names, Dr. Anthony Fauci and, of course, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky. The message from CDC remains clear. The best way to prevent the spread of COVID-19 variants is to prevent the spread of disease, and vaccination is the most powerful tool we have. We must continue to expand vaccine coverage by building trust and confidence in COVID-19 vaccines, and this is particularly important in communities of color, rural communities, and other population groups at risk. CDC is engaging trusted community leaders to reinforce messages about the safety, efficacy, and importance of vaccination. CDC remains committed to ensuring all of our work advances health equity. Been hearing that a lot, health equity. Well, the Delta variant is now the most dominant, more contagious. Cases are increasing, hospitalizations, and sadly, deaths. And this also means health care workers, our frontline health care workers, are once again bracing for the mental health ap- aspect of all this. And joining me now to talk about it is Dr. Deval Desai, Director of Hospital Medicine at Emory St. Joseph's Hospital. He's been a guest on this program so many times, and we really appreciate it. Welcome back, Dr. Desai. Thanks for having me, Rose. Great to be back with you. You know, we are hearing every day now these pleas, messages for folks to get vaccinated, the Delta variant really forcing these messages here. Um should we been a little bit more, I guess, should this message, even before the Delta variant, should it have been amplified? Or are folks just tired of hearing the same thing now? What do you think? You know, I think it's a little bit of everything. And I think if we look back at the beginning of the summer, we started to see cases dramatically decreasing. And that gave everyone hope. It gave hope to those that are vaccinated. And I think it gave hope to those that are unvaccinated that life is returning um, to a semi-normal state. And here we are towards the end of July and right in front of our eyes, we are seeing rapidly how the Delta variant starting to ravage our communities. 
Um, so it's a little bit of a, you know, I think the messages were amplified before and they certainly need to continue to be steady and amplified right now about vaccination. You know, in May of last year, we had a conversation and here's what you told me. So the last two months have been very stressful. I am only a fraction of the healthcare piece puzzle and there are many people who are day to day involved in taking care of these patients. One thing I am concerned about is the well-being and mental health of our healthcare providers and all of our healthcare team. Currently and over the last two months as we've navigated this crisis, we've really been in an acute mode where our adrenaline is peaking. As that adrenaline starts to wane and we establish a new normal, I really feel that we need to recognize and be aware of wellness for our healthcare providers. Dr. Desai, has any of that what you told me changed at all? Yeah, I mean, thinking back May of last year, that feels like a lifetime ago. We mm -hmm. have rode out three intense COVID surges. The healthcare system has been very stressed. Um, and throughout all of it, the wellness and the well-being of our healthcare workers is something that I remain passionate about. In terms of that adrenaline peaking when it was last May, I think that peak lasted a while and we were really coming off that adrenaline peak right now. Um, and as we face this new surge, so to surge that we're in, I am very concerned about the well-being of our healthcare workers because we have fought three surges. We did not expect to be in this position. And keeping in mind that last surge that we had was the beginning of the vaccination. So mm -hmm. we had hope. At this point, when we're seeing these patients, we've gone from feeling fatigued and stressed with COVID to now having a sense of anger um, and increased frustration saying, okay, we have something that is so preventable, major complications. How are we still in this position and why are we still in this position seeing this happening to us? Just the other day, you tweeted, which what caught my attention. You tweeted, quote, hashtag frontline healthcare workers have stories to tell. We must listen to them and keep up the fight against COVID-19. The stress and anxiety are real as we see cases rising again. What are you seeing or hearing from your colleagues or if you even want to share from your personal experience? What's it yeah, like right now? Personal Sure. Yeah. From the personal experience, it's witnessing the state of suffering. So being a hospital physician, I'm used to seeing critically ill, acutely ill patients, and there is a natural state of suffering that comes along with disease processes. But with COVID-19, now that we have something in order to prevent it, like the vaccine, the state of suffering that we're seeing causes more frustration. When I'm hearing my patients tell me I should have listened, I should have gotten vaccinated before, it's reassuring that the future is looking better for them, but it doesn't make the situation in the current state any better. Um, and we feel that. And I tell these patients, use your voice, empower yourself to use your voice to share with your loved ones, share with your community that vaccination is our way out of the pandemic. Um, you know, healthcare workers will have stories to tell. Our stories revolve around the witness to suffering, like I stated. Our stories revolve around us being pushed to the maximum state that we're in. Um, and we really thought we were coming off of that. And as we enter this fourth surge, it's time to go back and listen to healthcare workers and see that, you know, this is still real. The Delta variant is causing patients, younger patients, to become very ill. It is not something to be ignored. It is something that we have to pay attention to and listen to our healthcare workers. And that's not only me as a physician, that is our nurses, our techs, our respiratory therapists, the whole healthcare team that's involved. Dr. Desai, those individuals that you mentioned within the healthcare field, physicians, nurses, everyone, technicians, but there's also a, a counter group too, we've heard from, and I don't want to single out nurses, but there was been a lot of stories about nurses 
and other healthcare workers who don't want to get the vaccine. How do you yeah. how do you grapple with it? These are because you all are on the front line, and make no mistake, we we need you all, we value you all, obviously. Sure. But we have two groups here, and when you hear a healthcare worker, a nurse, someone who's saying, "I don't want to get the vaccine," how do you grapple with that? Well, first and foremost, I think it's about having a conversation and it's a conversation that has to happen over a continuum. I don't think we're going to convince that person to get vaccinated in that first stance. Um, it's something that I've gra- I've had real conversations with my colleagues about the vaccine and those that are hesitant about it. I've had nurses and nurse techs tell me, well, how do I know that they're going to inject you with something different versus inject me? At that point, I'll say, I will go down to the vaccine clinic with you and we'll take this vaccine. I'll be there with you. Um, And it really has to be, as Dr. Walensky said, this trusted messenger. We have to take on that role and be the trusted messenger and have those conversations. Um, And without that, I don't think we're going to get over this hump of the vaccine hesitancy. I will always say change can start with one person at a time. And I think we're in that state where we have to take it on the micro level and start with one patient, one colleague, one friend at a time to talk through this. So someone like yourself, you say it's going to start with you. And having those conversations, not only with patients, but also with your colleagues. But if you can't break through, does it then seem like that's a reality? That's a reality. And I will share that I can't always break through with my patients who are coming in. So in being intentional about bringing up the COVID vaccine, the patients that are in the hospital for non-COVID reasons and talking through that. I cannot convince everybody and convince may not be the best word, but I cannot navigate everybody towards vaccination. Um, and at that point, you have to accept it and try to either, you know, keep the conversation open, keep the conversation open about, well, let's talk about this again. Or here, I'm going to talk to your primary care physician. We're going to get through this. If you have any questions, here's my card. Send me an email. Um, I think completely as a healthcare worker, com- despite the anger, I feel completely closing myself off and say, I'm done with you. I can't talk to you about this more is not the right answer. And we need mm-hmm. to keep the conversations going because the reality is if we don't have continued increased vaccination, COVID is here to stay. It is gonna mutate from Delta to something else, to something else. It's going to become endemic. And we've seen that with people, we've seen that out there, we've seen those reports. And I think that's very real, the reality we're facing. Dr. Desai, a moment ago, you talked about witnessing the state of suffering. And I'm wondering, and I may know the answer to this, that you have had a final conversation. Maybe you knew it was gonna be a final conversation. Maybe you didn't know with the patient and and how do you how do you handle that when they say I should have gotten a shot or I should have known better or what have you because obviously at that moment you know placing guilt and placing blame does absolutely nothing yeah um and I would I would never want to place guilt or blame so I try to be as careful as possible I say, you know, you're right. We should have done something sooner, but here we are today and all we can do is move forward together and that's what we're gonna do. Um, And I think that's when you can really empower somebody saying, you have your story to tell. You have been through this. You have been short of breath. You're going home with oxygen now. Tell your story, the power of social media, so much of our patient population, especially is using social media platforms. Use your voice in the churches, use your voice in the community, all your family and friends talk about it because that may be the reality that somebody can see and they may not be seeing the reality that us healthcare workers are seeing. And how can healthcare workers or how should healthcare workers then have the resources they need mentally to deal with that? What do you all do at the hospital? What, what resources do you all have? 
Yeah, you know, Emory Healthcare has actually done a really good job over the last 18 months on promoting wellness. Um, and every group, every department does different things. You know, locally we have, you know, collaborative events at the hospital, you know, decompression sessions, wellness sessions, meditation, yoga. There's a lot of different avenues. That's not going to fix everything. I think the key is having an institution, an employer, or a system in general that acknowledged, look, this is very hard. This is not easy. Um, we just had Joint Commission come and visit us, and they actually mentioned to us saying, you need to focus on the well-being of your healthcare workers. So nationally, this is a phenomenon that's everywhere, and everybody's recognizing it. And having a system, an employer, you know, a boss that recognizes this is an issue, offering resources, that's half the battle, and that's the first step. How are you handling all of this? Yeah, so honestly, I am uh, I'm okay. I am frustrated right now in the state we're in. And it really does feel, and I said this earlier, that this is happening in front of our eyes. Three weeks ago, our cases were so low um, for weeks and weeks. And we really said, this is really good. This is going to be our normal. And within the last two weeks, what we are seeing is these exponential rising cases that's paralleling in our institutions locally, state, nationally. Um, I am feeling frustrated. I am feeling angry. And frankly, I'm really concerned about the fall. As I told you before, transparently, I'm a father of two young children, mm -hmm. a five and a half year old and a 16 month old. They are not vaccinated yet. And I do worry about them. I worry about, you know, them being out. My daughter is starting kindergarten, which she will mask at school. Um, I really worry about them. So I'm in a state that I am dealing with what we're dealing with and we will keep marching forward. But I definitely am frustrated and worried about our future right now. You said you're worried about the fall, meaning whether well, it's the continuation with the Delta variant. I had a conversation with, about a Delta plus variant that's coming on. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think, as I said, we're going to keep hearing the next variation, the next mutation of this variant. But I am worried about the fall. And, you know, I'm worried about as kids go back to school, we all need them to be face to face. Everybody agrees on that. And I agree with universal masking in our schools right now. We are going to see unprecedented numbers of illness if we see um, a lot of unmasking and a lot of, for lack of better words, unsafe practices, especially in the midst of rising COVID numbers. So I think it's all about disease prevention and focusing on health and really going back, as I said, 18 months ago, and I said now, listening to our health experts on this is the reality, this is where we're at. And six months from now, if we want to be in a better position, we all need to come together and do this. Dr. Desai, as we wrap up, I do want to focus on that in terms of listening to the experts because there's been a lot of talk about messaging. This is through your lens. Do you think that maybe the health experts and we all we listen to we listen to the CDC, we listen to Dr. Anthony Fauci and some other folks. That message that came a few months ago about, hey, you don't need to wear a mask. What role does that play in all of this? And do you think it was too early to start sending that message? Whether it was for vaccinated yeah, folks or unvaccinated folks. Yeah, the reality is you can't see who's vaccinated and unvaccinated, right? And that is the biggest counter argument, which I agree with. So I will share my story, my personal story. I am still masking out in public despite being vaccinated. Um, and I think I am an advocate for that. And I think that's what we should all be doing. Um, I do think it probably was a little premature. And that's my personal, my professional opinion. And I am a I'm a risk averse person wanting to focus on disease prevention and focus on getting through the upcoming months and getting our children, more of our pediatric population vaccinated before I'd feel a little bit more liberty to say, okay, vaccinated individuals can remove masks. Hmm. 
your little ones, your kindergarten, right? Starting kindergarten? Starting kindergarten in three weeks. What conversation have you had with that kindergartner about the, the mask and all of this? You know, she's um, she's adapted well. She is used to wearing masks right now, and she won't leave the house. She's made a mask chain that she attaches her mask to. She is doing summer camp right now. And Rose, the reality is, is most of the kids are not masking. She is still, and we're proud of her for that decision. We talk about it, why she's doing it, and she's accepted that as a reality. Um, so my 16-month-old starting to speak will recognize what a mask is, and as soon as he's two, hopefully we'll be in a better position. But if he needs to mask, he'll mask also. And finally, a better position. No one has a crystal ball, yeah. obviously, on this, but Dr. Desai, if you could give it a timeline, what would be what would be acceptable for you, I guess? This time next year we have another conversation or – you know? Yeah. You know, as we approach the fall and winter, I'm really cautiously optimistic about what's going to happen. So I am not overly saying we're going to be in a much different position for the rest of this calendar year. I think we're going to be in this position. I would like to think, Rose, by spring of next year, we're going to be in a better position. Um, and let's keep having this conversation. I think in the next three months, we'll see what's coming our way and go from there. But I think we need to listen to our experts, mask and focus on vaccination. All right. And we want to thank you and all the frontline healthcare workers for everything that you've been doing. Dr. Duvall Desai, Director of Hospital Medicine at Emory St. Joseph Hospital. As always, thanks for the conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Rose. should be in a coffee shop ordering a latte with oat milk or something like that. My producer Daniel picking this music. Like I should be, you know, studying or something. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The mission statement of Roots Down is pretty clear. Quote, we're building a world where every U.S. resident has access to fresh, nutritious food within a five-minute walk of their front door. Join us on our journey to change food systems, grow green jobs, and help grow the next generation of land stewards, close quote. And perhaps now more than ever, as this pandemic continues and food insecure households are increasing, we're going to talk about all of this. And Jamie Rosenthal is the founder and CEO of Roots Down, a Decatur-based, Decatur, DeKalb. I want to get it right because folks are sending me an email. He joins me now. Welcome. Well, thank you, Rose Scott. This is an honor to be here. It really is. I listen to you all the time and love NPR. You have nothing better to do. (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean, I'm outside a lot. So I listen to podcasts and I listen to NPR. And yeah, this there is great. Go. This is quite an honor. You know, I assume I know you all over at Roots Down pay attention to, to data related to your mission and, and something that I've been following a lot. And according to Feeding America, and they estimate due to the coronavirus pandemic, 42 million people may experience food insecurity this year. I know that oh, yeah. is not lost on you when you hear that number. Not at all. Not at all. Yeah, we 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 want to shift the paradigm and focus on a world that's that's abundant in mm-hmm. nature, and um, we want to have uh, landscapes that actually show this abundance that have food growing mm-hmm. where they should be. Most kids don't know where food comes from. They see it in the grocery store. They see it packaged or frozen. They don't really understand. 
So one of the, the, the larger missions of Roots Down is to actually demystify that process and make mm-hmm. it easy for people to understand. Food could be grown right outside. It could be grown at your public libraries. Mm-hmm. Plug yeah. for our edible libraries uh, We're going to talk about that in a moment. And um, yeah, it could be grown anywhere. And that grass grows. When you, and I know you've heard this, cause, and I've heard this, but when you hear this, people say, why is it so expensive to buy, quote, healthy food? You know, and we all, and I don't want to mention a name, but we all know those names associated with that. And that should not be the case, folks say. Yeah, How do we it, get here through your lens? Wow. Um, well, I think if we create food in every single nook and cranny in our landscapes, I think we could drive the price down of, of, of food. I think food um, in our grocery stores are heavily subsidized, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they come from government subsidies. Um, carry that down to the local farmer. Local farmers, small local farmers, don't have that subsidy in mind. They don't have that way to grow that food for as cheap on the dollar as what mm-hmm. large ag has. So I think that if we can grow on a more hyper-local level and keep our food local, um, and here, right in our neighborhoods, I think we can actually solve a lot of a lot of our issues with food insecurity and expensive foods. And what you see is like, you know, like the bougie, um, like organic produce. Um, that stuff could be grown anywhere in our now neighborhoods. Now I'm going to get an email about you using bougie organic food. Yes, maybe, <laughs> maybe. I love backstories. I know that's one with roots down. What is it? Yeah, well, I started um, in my early young years as a landscaper. Um, I knew that was problematic. I knew it wasn't really building soil ecology and helping our environment. Um, so I decided to go to wait, arts. Wait, wait, wait. You, yeah. you thought as a landscaper you weren't being... No, it didn't feel... Yeah. It, it never felt right. It felt mm-hmm. like very, like, um, like I was doing something uh, against nature. Really? Right? Yeah. I was... I was so planting it, marigolds and... Well, planting sod yeah. and certain, certain trees that are not, like, they're not going to benefit the soil gotcha. and not build back, you know build back our landscapes. Hmm. Um, yeah, so with that in mind, when I was young, um, I decided to drop that. I went to fashion photography school, um, got a degree at the Art Institute. Okay, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> this gets interesting, I know. You're a landscaper. Mm-hmm. It wasn't working out. These, <laughs> I'm going to take photos. Yep. And I'm not knocking that. It's just it's such a transition. I know. Like I know. supermodels. and I don't, know how, I don't know how I got there. Well, it was a commercial photography degree. Okay. And then I started traveling to New York and really fell in love with the art side of photography. Which is um, cool. Which is really cool. Yeah. Loved it. Loved it. And um, yeah, my wife and I decided to start having, you know, start, you know, bringing a child to this world. We're like, oh, well, let's, let's do that in a wholesome way. And, and that's when farming came up. Um, I literally dropped everything. I moved up to North Georgia and started a farm in Jasper, Georgia. Um, my farm was uh, named Wolf Scratch Farm, and it was a learning center. It was like a nonprofit and learning center for the community to learn how to cool. grow really great food. This is such a public radio story. It is. There's a lot more to it. <laughs> I could write a book on it. <laughs> Landscaping, fashion photography, farming. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. And as I said, my Prada glasses that I used to wear ended up being <laughs> eye shields for my, you know, my lawnmowers and weed eaters on the farm. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Jamie. I love this story, though. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> so, in, in Roots Down. Yes. Now, where does this fit in? That fits in. I moved back to the city. I wanted to get more involved with urban agriculture. Um, I started working with Mario Camardella, um, you know, the former director of mm-hmm. Urban Ag for Atlanta on the the food forest project and started i met with uh he was former mayor ted terry at the time Mm -hmm. um 
and really got interested in urban ag. And I was like, this is where I need to be. This is where the people are, and we need to feed people in the urban environment. And that was the moment. That was the moment. Everything else, yes. although it was part of the journey, but that was the moment. That was the moment when I realized that my really expensive fine art degree wasn't going to pay off, and maybe my you know, my agricultural background owning a farm could possibly pay off. It paid off. It was on a journey. Yeah. Roots down, and I love that name. And so for our listeners, and I gave the mission statement, but uh, in a sense, what are you all doing? Yeah, so we're working with county government right now. Um, One of our our, uh, pathways right now is working with the commissioners um, in that we created a Fruitful Communities Initiative. And we're working to uh, institution, institutionalize this knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. Bring this knowledge of growing food everywhere throughout the county. Um, in all the landscapes, they spend their cost centers for DeKalb County. We, we spend a lot of money in DeKalb. Our taxpayer dollars go to mowing and blowing. Mm-hmm. So we just want to shift that paradigm. So our basic mission is to create green jobs, advocate for newer, better, more abundant, greener spaces, right? And do that through county government so that we can actually lead as a county government um, and government, small government, we could lead the charge and show people what to do. Okay, show people what to do, leading the charge. I'm a DeKalb County resident. I have a pretty nice yard. I call you all, say, come out, give an assessment, tell me what I need to do. What do you all do? Yeah, so we, we actually advocate and educate. Um, so we work with actually um, people that are in the landscaping field and we train. We do a lot of training courses and, um, you know, kind of adding a plug that we're actually starting to institutionalize that knowledge into Cab County by building a green jobs training program for facilities department. So we don't necessarily do the landscaping anymore. Mm-hmm. That was something we did like pre, you know, pre-COVID. Um, but in the post-COVID world... So you're equipping, equipping people with the knowledge and the naked. Yes. Yeah. Like we have like a really great landscaping uh, company that we work with, Time to Party, um, they time T H Y M E for those of you guys who are questioning. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, they're they're amazing, and like they do edible landscaping, so they can actually help you turn your your garden into a beautiful oasis of food and pollinator habitat. What's the feedback been like from them about the folks they're working with? Um, you know, it's actually been really life changing. Like, uh, you know, the pandemic has really changed the business model of what landscaping can be like, can be like um, in the future. You think many people think of landscaping as as part of the urban gardening? We we platform? should we should be, and I'll tell you why. Landscaping has a four and a half billion dollar. It's a four and a half billion dollar industry in, in Metro Atlanta. Yes, big industry. Urban ag is not. So if we can cross train people to do the urban ag type of thing, and we use the dollars that come from landscaping and all of that really great equity that's built in, that we could build better jobs for people in our community, um, jobs with the living wages and um, you know, upward mobility. So that's, yes, I think that that is actually a knowledge that I think we need to know as, our, as community members um, learn more about these processes. And in your, I guess, partnership with mm-hmm. DeKalb County, Oh yeah. What does it actually look like? I mean, you all have, I won't call it free reign, but they are looking for you all to take this mission help those who are in and to help others and is that pretty much how it works that's the partnership yeah the partnership right now is we have been really lockstep with uh the DeKalb county facilities department because we're actually changing all of the the libraries that's the first um landscapes in our portfolio we're changing all the libraries to edible libraries so we're working with facilities um and DeKalb county has been amazing you're a resident i'm a resident the people that i have met have 
I'm not a resident of DeKalb County. Oh, you're not? Oh, but I'm I love DeKalb County. Oh, I'm County. sorry. I'm sorry. I, I I'll get an email. Rose, you live next door to me, and we are not no, in DeKalb no, no. County. No, no, no. Okay. Well, but I love DeKalb County because I don't want uh, CEO Thurman to send me an email. Yes. Yes. Well, again, they have been open arms and really wonderful with understanding this program and really wanting to help change the lives of their of their residents. Jamie Rosenthal, let's then talk about these edible libraries, because now I probably will go to <laughs> the Cacti yeah. Library. Well, what's the concept here? The concept was we were talking about edible landscapes in our communities, where community thrives and brings us together. And we were on the phone with Commissioner Marita Johnson. Mm-hmm. And she said, why not my libraries? Let's start there. And that is where the edible libraries campaign began. She thought it was an amazing idea to put food and pollinator habitat right where the the residents come to, where there's internet service, where there's office spaces, um, where there's places for people to hang out. And that's what that's where it all began. So now we're actually creating um, the landscaping. We're uh, completely overhauling these landscapes to produce food and pollinator habitat. It's a pretty beautiful thing. And how many libraries are we talking about here in DeKalb County? Quite right. Yeah. So right now we started with six libraries. Um, we have... Uh, all of five in uh, Commissioner Marita Johnson's district, all five libraries have started with this edible library campaign. Um, Commissioner Ted Terry, the Clarkson Library, whole overhaul, mm-hmm. no grass. The landscaping company came out there, our vendor came out there, looked around and said, well, I guess I got nothing to do. I'm like, because we covered the ground with soil and fruit trees and all this stuff, so there wasn't, there wasn't grass to mow, there wasn't a weed eater that was on that day. It was a beautiful day. So that's six libraries so far, and we're hoping to finish out that portfolio in 2022. And the community community can come out and help take care of it, be a part of, what are they doing here? Yeah, we're going to do a really robust uh, community-driven program, um, and we're going to be, we're going to make sure that the community knows that we're not going anywhere, that we're not just setting up these gardens and we're going to walk away. And that's really why institutionalizing this knowledge is really important. So we're going to be doing lots of training, community training, organizing, building partnerships for these gardens. What are some of the misconceptions people have about urban gardening or being an urban gardener? Oh my gosh, that is a really big question. Um, one of them is it makes a mess. They make really? a mess. They're really? messy. They're messy. I would say that's kind of a myth if you don't really understand the landscape and what they're supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. I think they could be aesthetically beautiful. And that's one of the things. I'm a real big aesthetic like uh, stickler. I like to make things look beautiful. So yeah, so as far as that's concerned, people say, oh, they're messy and they get weedy. Well, a lot of times because they're, they're volunteer powered. Mm-hmm. They don't have a, a manicured landscaping company coming out and maintaining it once a week. And that's where I'm trying to crush that paradigm saying, yeah, these edible landscapes, they need maintenance too. Maybe not as much, mm-hmm. but they still need maintenance. So yeah, that's a big myth. Well, and what about, and I've heard people say, well, I don't know that much about soil and you have to have a certain kind of soil and, you know, I don't want to use pesticides and I don't understand all of that. And, and that's why I don't do it. I've heard people say that. I would say first, soil is important. The health of our soil is important. And the moment that we could start building our soil is uh, you will see a lot less disease pressure and pest pressure for sure. Um, so that's really important. That's what we want to teach community as well is build your soil, build biodiversity in your plant species. And then a lot of that stuff will go away. It will take some time. Mm-hmm. It's got to take some patience. But but yeah, good, healthy soil. The voice you hear is Jamie Rosenthal. He's the CEO and founder of Roots Down. It's an organization in DeKalb County. I have a question here from someone who says, what do urban gardens provide that can't come from already existing farmers, markets or local vendors? 
Interesting question. Yeah, that is an interesting question. Um, well, I think it, it usually farms are tucked in to places that it's really hard for the public to get to, mm-hmm. right? They're usually in rows. They're usually um, got electric netting or fencing around to keep this out. The difference between this model, you know, the model that they're discussing, the model that I am, is actually like blurring those lines completely mm-hmm. and just having edibles everywhere within the landscape. And to be clear, we're not talking about trying to get folks to grow some corn because it takes a lot of land to grow corn. Yeah. Or, or are you trying to get folks well, to grow corn? you grow a little corn. bit in your, your yard. Why not? But yeah, this is, this is uh, you know, I would say 60% perennial based, like mm. fruit okay, trees, yeah. nuts, berries, things that you can like forage on in your landscape. Yeah. And you all see this being a part of, not obviously the solution, because it takes a holistic approach, but you all seeing this playing a part in when we talk about food insecurity, which is why we brought you on the program, right. as we talked about coming into this segment. You feel this is a small part playing in that? I think it is. I think it's really important as an educational tool, again, to teach the world of abundance and not a scarcity mindset. It's kind of blast that scarcity mindset out. Um, it's not to displace local farmers. I think it would be maybe in the future we'll see more land stewards that actually use a lot of the skill set that local farmers use to build soil and good healthy soil ecology. But yeah, I think this is this is a good model for people to see and to taste and to walk through and to be a part of. In a region like we're in, whether it's Atlanta or just or the region that the Atlanta Regional Commission considers, which is about 13 counties here, mm-hmm. and we always hear about the goal of having walkable neighborhoods, you know, communities that have everything. You and I both know there are communities on a certain part of town where you have access to everything, but then you go maybe a mile or a mile away, and some communities, they don't even have sidewalks. They have to walk a mile to get to the Marta, the next Marta stop. Equity in all of this too, Jamie. Mm-hmm. You know, that's an issue here. So you all in cab, but are you also making sure you get this message out to those households and communities that can really benefit from this the, bo- the most as well? I would love to. Um, yeah, I think that one of the ways that we could actually uh, work this is set the example by, by showing these pilot projects mm-hmm. and working really tightly with DeKalb as a model to go forward and work with other counties, Fulton County, um, Gwinnett County, Cobb County. Our, our, we want to work with other county governments and other city governments. I mean, the city of Decatur, which I live in, mm-hmm. um, is interested. But how do you, what do you use as that model to, to show them, hey, this is working? I mean, do you say, hey, we just have these edible gardens? I mean, they, you know, you know politics. They say, well, show us something. Give us the data. What do you have? You know that. Yeah, this is a pilot project. We're building the data. And I think that um, one of the really cool things that we're, um, one of our partners is with Piedmont Technical College. Hmm. They want to create this program, the growers program, right? And they want to actually institutionalize this knowledge within their within their program. So that's one way. It's like, that's a, a way that we could show that this is a real deal. This is a pathway forward, which is following Biden's plan, by the way, right? Of building back better, um, using our COVID relief, you know, money that, that, all county governments um, have um, in place. It's like saying, yes, we could use this money for something much better than what we've been doing in the in the past. And I think institutionalizing knowledge through college is a really good idea. And also workforce development. I just had a conversation just yesterday uh, about a program that's re- working with those that were formerly incarcerated. You know, we know the plight of folks who need to be able to get jobs Period. Yeah. Everybody. So you see workforce development as a part of this. Too. Yeah. Workforce to cab is involved. And I call this the shovel ready job. 
right? Mm-hmm. It's the job that it doesn't, it's not going to take a, a, a necessarily a four-year degree. It's going to take someone that understands how to work with soil and understand, you know, our innate ability to understand nature, which we're all built with, right? So I think, um, yeah, so that's one of the, one of the goals is, is actually like, you know, making this an easy pathway, a career pathway for anyone. You see roots down in all the counties. What's your timeline, hopefully? Yeah, I, I mean, I see that we do this pilot project. I see that we we do um, some really great parties and some really great things around this. Um, I like to have fun, you know. Like, you know, climate change is really a bleak thing to talk about, and food insecurity is a bleak thing to talk about. But we want to have fun while we're solving these these issues. So I think once once we have fun, and we're going to do a community uh, fruitful communities forum um, at the end of the year, and invite other counties to be a part of this this forum process to see what we're doing. Um, timeline. 2025. By the end of 2025, I would like for for us to be working with other counties in, in Georgia. Really? And yeah. then could this... At least Fulton, Gwinnett, and Cobb. Let's and go there. Could this also maybe grow nationally as well? I would love it to grow. Na- I mean, that gives us the... Working with Piedmont Tech mm-hmm. gives us the ability for this to be a national Because you're program. hitting all tentacles here yeah. as it relates to food insecurity. You're hitting most of those quality of life tentacles that we talk about on this mm-hmm. program. So when you think back to when you were up in New York and doing your and with your fashion folks and all them people. <laughs> right. And you think about to where you are now. What's What's been this journey? What's this journey been like? Oh, it's bizarre. It's an out-of-body. <laughs> being here with you today is an out-of-body experience. And it's really, it's been a really, really, it's been it's been a crazy crazy journey and i think it does take um uh it cannot take just a one-pronged approach to fix a a, a major solution in Mm -hmm. in society right so um so yeah i think that you know i want to also plug our green hive leadership program what's that um well that's that's how we teach the youth to advocate Mm -hmm. for these spaces not using them for volunteer based work getting shovels out and sweating because mm-hmm. it's some, something kids don't necessarily like to do until they really understand it. Not everybody wants to be a farmer, but we're teaching them how to advocate for greener, more abundant spaces. And DeKalb ha- is working on that youth farm that, that's currently un- under construction, which is going to be just yeah. huge. I can't wait to go. Yes. They, have, they have some fancy hen house, I don't know, condominium for hens or chickens or whatever over there, but it's going to be just great. So getting the youth involved. What questions do the youth have for you? What do they say? What do you mean, man? Come on. Well, I, you know, I have a 12-year-old daughter, Sophia, and um, they tell me all the time, how, how do you, how do you, what are you going to do for us? What, what, what are you going to do for us as the youth? Like, you guys, you guys screwed it up. And that's a big thing. I'm like, well. Oh, my goodness. I'm, that's a- <laughs> I'm like. I'm, She's right. Yeah, but- <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in Gen X. I'm like, yeah, like we, you know, we've get in, getting the kids involved in civics, mm-hmm. getting them engaged in civics in a way that can really make change is a really important process for me. Jamie Rosenthal, he's the founder and CEO of Roots Down. And I know you all partner with a friend of ours, a friend of this program, Eventide Brewery. Oh, yes. We first, I, I, I take pride in this. We first profiled Eventide Brewery when they were just two guys with a beer kit. <laughs> <laughs> now they're so much bigger. Um, and they had a dog. I can't remember the dog's name, but... They were just starting, and they were working hard to become part of the community in Grant Park. We've had partnerships with them, and now you all are working together. Yeah, we're doing a, a, a beer collab. Now, what is that? It is going to be called the Library Sour, the Roots Down Library Sour. 
library <laughs> sour and that's to actually like um bring awareness to our edible library campaign raise a little money have fun again i i mentioned fun i like yeah. to have fun well, so, if you got a brewery involved, it's going to be fun. Yeah, it's going to be fun. So we're going to do a really great um, campaign with them as well. So And they are fine folks at Eventide Brewery. Uh, they actually, for one occasion, they had a rose, some type of rose-infused beer. It was just for one day. And it, it, was a, it was a great seller. It was like sold out. Yeah, that sounds so, awesome. That's all I'm saying. So do, do you need my website? <laughs> <laughs> before you, we leave well roots down but go ahead I, yeah roots roots down <laughs> ga backslash uh wab check it out all right now let me ask you this um because we have to have a movie about your life because i you're the only person i know that was into landscaping and then went on to be a fashion photographer then went to be a farmer and then started an organization and and went into edible libraries I'm pretty sure that you're the only person on the planet that has had this path. We have to tell the story. Who plays you in the movie? Oh my gosh, who would play me I'm in that movie? I'm thinking maybe Matt Damon, but I'm not sure. Is that? Uh, I don't know. Zach Galifianakis. Uh, you know, like he's kind of a funny. Kept my my engineer but, <laughs> Kevin's looking like. Uh, no, I don't know. I don't know. Matt Damon's great. Yeah, Matt, Matt plays Matt Damon's everybody. great. Yeah, it's great. We'll go with that. He's handsome. <laughs> Jamie, thank you so much for coming in and sharing this story. Thank you for what you all are trying to do to help folks with this food insecurity plight. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of the day's show, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Maybe we should have a Closer Look garden somewhere. I don't know. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.